Wow. Okay. <laughs> I wonder what's doing this. Well, at least we got it ten minutes in. Sponsored by Playfair Capital. Rethink the way you live and work. Hello and welcome to The Chess Pit, the podcast in which three guys talk about chess occasionally. I'm John McKenzie and I'm joined, as always, by my good friend Phil Makepeace. Hello. And my other good friend, although less of a good friend, Chris Russell. Sorry. Good morning. <laughs> this is take two of the uh, Chess Pit podcast. There is ten minutes of golden material which will be lost in perpetuity. So, um, And you have no one to blame but, but Chris Russell, who uh, for some reason didn't manage to press record properly. But how the hell are we doing, chaps? I blame Pugsvang. I think Pugsvang <laughs> is, is somewhere in there, Chris. I have to shoulder the full responsibility for this. I can't even begin to blame anyone else. So somehow in the process of clicking record, I have a wonderful three seconds of silence and then the recording just stops. It's the best three and a half seconds in chess pit history, probably. It might well be. It might well be. But yes, I'm, I'm very sorry to put us through this once again. I've cut my beard off. Have you, did you notice? You're looking very... Um, What's the word for that? Svelte, maybe. Svelte. <laughs> Svelte. <laughs> he just has less of a face. <laughs> the weird thing is, is that now that I've shaved my beard off, my face is way more itchy than it ever was when my beard was long, which seems counterintuitive to me. I mean, have you actually shaved it off? It looks still quite hairy. I mean, it's you're actually, your, your idea of a beard shaved off is actually probably longer than mine. <laughs> yeah, it's true, but I did cut about an inch off my beard. So it's what prompted this kind of beard evacuation? Well, Did someone got... cross the street when they saw you? No, it's not. Well, people do that now anyway, don't they? So, <laughs> which which makes me feel a lot more comfortable about walking around in public, to be honest. But sure, um, yeah, I'd, it it got to such an extent of length that you had small woodland creatures living inside it. It became hard to know what to do with it. And usually what I do when it reaches that point is I go to a barber and just say, sort it out, here's my money, take what it takes. Um, But I can't do that at the moment. So I've decided that, given that it's probably going to be six months before I go to a barber's again, to just cut it all off, let it get to the same stage again in six months' time, and then then I can deal with the problem then. So that was the extent to which the logical processes uh, were, were operating behind my decision. So it's essentially a problem for future John now and you can just live in the moment exactly. with your itchy, itchy face. But, so if you hear any like weird scratching sounds, that's just me itching my beard face. But, or it's Pugswang again, yeah, breaking in. One of those two. Anyway, another person who has solved problems this week is, is you, Phil, because you've solved your rice problem. I have. I am now a carb king. So, <laughs> yeah, I got a uh, thank you to my friend Liam who got in touch to offer me advice that he got from a, an Indian granny, as he put it. Um, and, yeah, I made burritos last night with rice. And, yes, I've solved my rice issue. So I can now make beautiful, fluffy rice at will. Is, is burritos and rice an accepted dish? Seems to me to be mixing... Cultures there. Is that, you put is that... rice in burritos. Oh, you put them in burritos. Yes. Yeah, that's true. Yes, I hadn't so thought it's... of that. <laughs> you don't just have it as a side. You, you no. got your cheese, your sour cream, and your salsa on the side with just a bit of rice. Yeah. No. Oh. You put it in in with the whole thing, and then you just wrap it up and, yeah, and yeah. try not to um, squirt everywhere, as it were. Well, the fajita is the is clearly the the king of of the wrap world. So you're not a taco man. 
Nah. Taco what about a nice enchilada? Enchiladas are okay. I have time. Or taquito. I have time in my life for an enchilada. We were talking a little bit about YouTube in recording 1.0 of this of this podcast episode. Uh, we were remarking on the fact that um, when when you have a number of different YouTube channels available to you, which we all do, given the various media outlets that we have, oh, a nice appearance there from the Chess Pit Pod mug from from Phil taking a swift. No one can see that, but Phil is is now. It, I should probably screenshot that. Yeah, for we probably future should. Future generations. Well, I'm in, a, I'm in a dressing gown. I'd rather you didn't. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Apologies. Yeah, it does look a little bit like Arthur Dent right now, but um, <laughs> yeah, when you have quite a few YouTube channels available to you, and you, sometimes you end up watching videos on on your non-main account, it does wonderful things to the uh, algorithm that YouTube uses, and and starts throwing out some fairly bizarre. Uh, different different videos into the algorithm so i wondered if you could go through the uh the the chess pit no we've got the chess pit and you've got what make peace with chess as well yeah um, we do so what you what's that chucked out for you yeah i mean the chess pit one at the moment is basically me so i've it's one of those where i've accidentally at some point watched some videos on the chess pit when i've been logged into the chess pit youtube when i've been uploading our streams um now Six of them here are definitely me, and there's one which definitely isn't, one which is presumably just chucking it in there because it's being massively promoted. Either that or someone has used our account to watch fitness videos. And um, there's <laughs> Seems one. unlikely. Yeah. Um, so there's there's a family guy one, uh, rugby, one rugby, one cricket, one football, a Norm MacDonald ex- interview, and um, something from... I don't know, one of those Channel 4 comedies. But yeah, it's it's basically just me, I'm afraid. Hmm. There's also Jeff Bridges reacts to the death of Robin Williams at a press conference, which I, I, I think is more because I follow... I may have subscribed to the Associated Press Archive accidentally on the Chess Pit Pod thing, rather than me being particularly interested in interviews about famous comedians' deaths. <laughs> You'd hope so. I'm just looking at the All Stats Aren't We YouTube channel, which is my Leeds channel, which has got a real mixture of videos. And I think I'm the only person who has access to this, which makes none, none of this makes any sense. I've got the first thing that comes up is Clueless White Guy Orders in Perfect Chinese. I've, I've never watched anything by Xiaoma. Zhao Man. Xiaoma is yeah. good. We like Xiaoma. Xiaoma is, um, yeah, he's a. American guy who studied in uh, Beijing and then has now um, made a made fame on YouTube by going around Chinese restaurants in New York and ordering imperfect Chinese to the bewilderment of everyone there. So built uh, perfect Mandarin, um, Cantonese. Uh, there's another one called something like Fujianese, and yeah, he's now recently made good with his YouTube millions and is giving thousands of dollars away to uh, restaurants who have been suffering during the pandemic, which is good. So that's nice. Yeah, nice to see someone using internet fame in a, in a good way. Certainly won't see anything like that happening on the Chess Pit podcast. Yeah, we've speculated as to where our Chess Pit millions might end up in that scenario. And the answer is nowhere good, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Phil did mention that he might start a, a chess club in the middle of London but I'm yet to be- yeah. I'll, I'll believe that when I see it yeah just like a 24 hour chess cafe 
because they they don't exist. Really. Twenty four hours is quite a long time control, Phil. Are you sure that people would be in for that? I think so. I think yeah, these three day games. It, <laughs> you need more stamina. Chess in, in match, the game. chess. There's not enough Absolutely. chess match, right? Too much of this whiteboard nonsense. <laughs> I'm just on the make piece with chess YouTube and happily there are actually some chess videos there. There's one by Naka, one by Gadmator and one by Eric Rosen. Oh, and also a, a banter blitz with Timor Rajabov from Chess24. But it's usually dotted with things like Bell and Sebastian, Mogwai, um, Norwich City highlights. Actually, there is a Norwich City one here. Your, your, um, your win over Luton. Ah, yeah. Is in the, is in the recommendations. I've got Obama sings the Wellerman sea shanty with friends, which is some kind of deep fake with with him singing sea shanties with Donald Trump, Joe Biden, and uh, Bernie Sanders. So there you go. Deep fake is a really concerning new development. I feel. I think. How long do you reckon it will be before the chess bit succumbs to some kind of deep fake calamity? You mean it's going to happen that someone's going to do deep fake of us actually talking about chess? <laughs> exactly, and then ruin our uh, carefully constructed image of never discussing anything to do with it on the show. Presumably, there's ways of being able to find out if something's deep fake, right? As in, like you can uh, you can analyze the actual video that is. Well, there's produced. this. There's been this Twitter thread, hasn't there? Of what would a deep fake do that would indicate that it was a deep fake if it was trying to represent you? Like some kind of, you know, that it's like an extension of the thing of yeah. If you were being held hostage, what would you, what would well, it would indicate that you were being held hostage? Do we all have to get like watermarks tattooed to our face, so that we know who the real one of us is? Oh no, I guess the fake, the deep fake would also have the same. Ugh, that doesn't work. <laughs> I think well, if John started winning games, we might. <laughs> That's just cheating, isn't it? Cheating is just <laughs> deep fake chess, right? Um, but at the risk of getting you guys to talk about cheating again, I'm going to move swiftly on, uh, and we'll move to the part okay, cool. of the show where we talk about the dying tones of Spy Law in the in the distance. Uh, I think we're we're well and truly into this episode now, so the the theme tune for our podcast is probably only in the dim and distant memory uh, for the listeners. But Hugh Breakin is the lead singer of Spy Law, and Hugh is a man who has views, and this week's view from Hugh is... The British press is institutionally racist, and Piers Morgan is a horrible, horrible person. It's tough to disagree with anything. <laughs> <laughs> yep, next. Yeah, it's it's been a strange week, hasn't it? But maybe not. Maybe that's the point. Maybe everything's just been kind of shone, having a light yeah. shone on it when actually it's just been like that for decades and nothing's ever been done. There's been aspects of, of indirectly following modern culture this week that just makes you aware that just everything is dripping in racism. Everything is, you know, if you just dig beneath the surface or even just scratch the surface of a lot of what goes on, there's just such a monstrous mass of racism like lying under the surface. And the thing that gets me, I think, is the fact that there's a large group of people in this country who genuinely don't think it's the case. Uh, I was having conversations with my parents yesterday and my mum is convinced that the Queen isn't racist. And and I just, you know, I just kind of, I just don't think that... when you When you just have a cursory glance at some of the things her husband has said in public record about 
various cultures. Um, I just don't. I just don't think it's. Po- I just think it is possible that you know there is this sort of structural racism that sort of underpins a lot of what goes under the name of British culture. And I think we it's it's high time we started trying to deal with those things. But here we are. I mean, it's not like Prince Harry went round in a Nazi outfit in the. It's what it was eighteenth birthday, was it? Yeah, there have yeah. been a series of quite impressive clangers coming from the palace. Of <laughs> I mean, that, is that that would be my definition of the monarchy? Just a series of uh, <laughs> unprecedented clangers. But what the well, the cartoon that's on the moon? <laughs> that, that, that one. Yeah, those clangers. <laughs> yeah, bit before my time film. A bit before. I mean, wow, <laughs> this is it. I just know my history, John. Oh, wow. And Chris knows his Christery. So mm. <laughs> I'm not going to call it Jizstery. That would that would not really uh, <laughs> would set not the right tone, jizzed. I don't think. <laughs> no. <laughs> wow. I didn't think that we were going to be able to lower the tone any more than talking about the monarchy potentially being racist, but here we are. Fistery isn't any better, to be fair. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm struggling to keep everything together right now, so... Um, I don't know what's next. I'm going to do what I always do in these situations and run away to the running order and see what's going on. And I'm informed that Phil has a quiz. So, Phil. Phil does have a quiz. But first, the news. And a few weeks ago, we related to you that uh, Conoru Humpy, the Indian Grandmaster, had been nominated for the BBC Indian Sportswoman of the Year Award. And it was announced this week on International Women's Day. And she won it. So, Conoru Humpy chess player number three in the world i think is uh the bbc indian women's sports person of the year and i've done a kind of protest quiz are we allowed to protest the quiz i didn't know that i would have i would have (laughs) exercised my rights more often if i'd have known this this country that will never happen i mean certain way it might i hope it will in future but chess players are not considered personalities and certainly not um there's no real awareness of our best women players and girl players uh hopefully that will change with the queen's gambit but you know it's um it's not like we have a world number three but we have a decent number we've had a decent number of um very good female players in our history and chris is going to talk about one of them later however as a little kind of protest thing I would like you, over the course of the episode, and for you guys at home, you can do this as well, there have been 13 women who have won the overall BBC Sports Personality of the Year award. Of course, none of them are chess. But I would like you to name as many of those 13 as you can. And we will do it penalty shootout style at the end of the episode. So, we will... There are 13 women who have won the BBC Sports Personality of the Year Award. None of them are for chess. So this is a protest against the complete lack of chess and women's chess kind of culture in this country in the wider sphere. So sorry, it's not a chess quiz. But well done to Coronaru Humpy. Mm. We're doing that later in the... We'll do that. Just get, yeah, get as many as you can and then we'll just sort of alternate until one of you runs out later on. Right, who wants to talk about puzzles? I guess we are beginning to think seriously about chess in this episode (laughs) and puzzles feels like a good place to start off so there's a sense that um, 
they're sort of used as a training tool or kind of widely held as having value uh but perhaps there's sort of a bit of sophistication here there's lots of different types that you can look at so you've got the kind of option of the puzzle rush or now puzzle storm as well that the lee chess kind of version of that where you do the kind of rapid fire um accuracy type puzzle where you're just sort of it's testing your pattern recognition essentially can you look at a position and immediately does the tactic jump out at you um, and then there's the kind of longer form calculation-y type ones, which are the sort of more general, uh, the one if you'd click the tab for puzzles on Lee Chess or uh, chess.com, where they're testing a slightly different skill set where you're sat in front of a difficult position for a decent length of time trying to uh, bend it to your will. And uh, I saw, Phil, did you you did a puzzle stream recently or with the chess bit? The first chess pit stream for a few months now, I did, yeah, Puzzle Rush Survival. So what's the difference? That's a longer form one. It's basically just exactly that of um, where if you just, yeah, if you just click on puzzles on your um, chess website of choice, it will give you rating appropriate puzzles. However, the Puzzle Rush Survival is in the same mode as the rush where you start right at the bottom and you get harder and harder and harder. And three strikes and you're out. Three strikes and you're out, but you have no time limit. So I'd got to 54 uh, mm. on my own back without streaming the previous evening, which put me something like 14th in the world for that day, just behind Ferruja, um, which was nice. quite cool. Um, so I basically just... I don't know what it was. I, I think it was that thing of I had three hours spare in the evening because I did. And I just kind of was in the zone and I got on with and then I tried again with commentary and streaming the following evening and got 42 or 41 even and it was just really hard commentating on it and I hadn't streamed for a few months and I wasn't really used to it again I had to get back into it um but I was missing quite obvious things that and I, I think part of the problem was because I was on stream I was conscious of not just sitting there for half an hour dwelling it up I guess you're going to be more likely to play your instinctive choice there and not do the kind of depth of calculation you might need. Yeah, so that probably is something I'll do again. But I think what I would do is instead of... Have long 30-minute pauses each time. Well, no, I think the best thing to do would actually be to start the stream when I got to 40 and then really discuss the, um, the harder puzzles in depth rather than... Um, getting to sort of have like 30 odd after about 40 minutes of just going through the puzzles properly from the beginning for our um, because that's the point I mean most of the people who would be watching it won't understand the 40 pluses and so I was trying to make it a kind of universal stream as possible however if I could really go into depth say spend 10, 15, 20 minutes on an individual puzzle and really go into the ins and outs of it and the processing involved without being conscious of the audience and etc and just make it into a proper kind of even just like dealing with one puzzle on the stream because that's the thing because the nice thing about the chess uh, the chess.com puzzle rush survival is that you can click out at any time and return the next day and it will still be there so you can take weeks over a single puzzle, a single survival. So I could even do it so that I just dealt with two puzzles or three puzzles properly on a stream. Um, 
But since then, I've been really going for the Lee Chess puzzles, and I got up to 2,600, which was quite cool. Um, I'm back down to about 2,500 now. And I had they really punish you when yeah. you get one wrong, right? You need about four or five to match up for each one that you mess up, so it's quite a. Yeah. Which I guess is probably a bit more game-like, right? That it's kind of encouraging that accuracy. I think what we would suggest as coaches is that you lay off puzzles as a pure training tool and as what Chris said is that if you're going to do the fast ones then that's probably more of a not something to really take that seriously and it's more to do with sharpening your instincts you're testing something a bit different there yeah. um, not your deep calculation but I, I've, I've been really recommending doing the survivals especially for kids because getting to grip that then really taking five or ten minutes over a particular position or getting the habit of that is very important that's something they won't have done before so i've been giving yeah survival homeworks to my my junior students and in the hope that they will then slow down in the critical positions in their games it hasn't happened quite yet but i'm sure i'm sure it's the the intention is good <laughs> john what's the longest you've spent on a single move do you reckon in your chess career when i play i think i probably uh on the side of spending too long on in general um so i think in in maybe a a classical game i will probably have spent 15 20 minutes on a move i tend to try and do that thing where i and no doubt fail on this but find a a moment where i think this is an important positional situation um, and and the the game could go in different ways on the basis of that, and so I tend to think maybe more about strategy in in my long breaks. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I part of my problem is that a, a lot of the time I'm like I need to spend time here, and I'm not actually doing anything useful. I just know that it's <laughs> it's a serious situation, and that I need to think about it. And maybe I'm not using that time as as well as I could. But yeah, I. Certainly when I'm playing puzzles, I don't spend enough time on them. And I think a lot of the time in my puzzle um, experience, I've seen the tactic but got the moves in the wrong order just because I'm going a bit too quick sometimes. Yeah, and I think doing them online kind of promotes that a little bit, that you're in that sort of click first and think later mentality a little bit, Um, that it becomes harder. Maybe sort of setting. Do you actually do this, Phil? Do you set them up on a board or do you play them out on the screen? I've been doing it in bed on my phone. Okay. Um, yeah. But no, but it's actually okay. Because the point is, I'm just sitting there with a podcast. And what I'm actually really doing is mainly listening to the podcast or mainly listening to the music or whatever. And then the, the puzzle is almost incidental. It just means that I can just sort of have something to focus on. I do this with crosswords as well. I take the same kind of approach of just sitting down, just knowing that everything is, there's no hurry. I think that if I did it on a real board, that would. Yes, you're right. That would probably improve things. However, I'd be tempted to make the moves on the board. And that's not yeah, something you get the luxury okay. of doing in a real game. So I think, yeah, for the if I was just going to calculate it from the board, then that would be very helpful. But yeah, again, there's a temptation there to cheat and really go through all the variations. Um, I don't think it's... I don't think there's anything wrong with doing it on your phone if I'm then taking, if I'm still taking the time. I don't think it really makes any difference. Yeah, it's just if it encourages you to 
play that move earlier than you normally would like just because you're sort of in that I don't know I see a lead chess board and I want to play quickly these days that might be because I'm playing too much blitz puzzles if you're trying to do base your training around them it's not really I mean leechess and chess.com they claim that these the positions they're putting in are, are like a mix of you know, your basic tactics and your more kind of strategic or positional puzzles but you know there's something there right and that that isn't very game like I think I'd like to see them put in more um, defensive ones or more uh, more draws actually rather than always having to play for a win I think I'd like more yeah more of those kind of ones where you're, you're looking for the drawing move what about puzzles where you manage to find the worst move oh well they exist worst move on the board yeah there's yeah. a whole series on the Streatham and Brixton the old Streatham and Brixton chess blog um, called... I reckon I'd be quite good at that well, have a look there's also the kind of help helpmate genre of puzzle where both sides are working together to mate one of the colours so white will simultaneously be making the worst move each time while black makes the best move and black has to mate for example um, so that that could be your your new uh, I'll focus, just play John. the person who's trying to lose but trying to win yeah nice and then I'll uh, probably it'll probably work out the the best way it, but puzzle I think the thing with puzzles for me is that puzzles feel quite manageable um, like I think even at, even at the end of last year I haven't been playing much chess at all um, because I think maybe it, it feels like too much of a commitment um it feels like you you know you have to sort of if you if you're going to play games you're sort of committing to well one losing but also spending a huge amount of time and then playing more games and then sort of getting tied up in it whereas for me puzzles were just a really nice way of uh feeling as though i was keeping my eye in yeah yeah and keeping keeping it ticking over maybe that maybe this is the wrong audience to admit that i'm not playing much chess in uh, at the moment so it might be the perfect audience <laughs> to admit that i assume that there's uh gradually we're the sort of serious chess players amongst our listenership are finding other avenues <laughs> <laughs> could to be, get their fix could be true but I, I do think that the pandemic has definitely impacted my joie de vivre when it comes to chess to use the latin yes um, <laughs> <laughs> Um, but I don't know. I don't know whether or not anyone else is sort of getting chess. What, what you, what's the word that you use in this scenario? Ennui. Ch- ennui. Mm. Um, yeah. Whether or not people are sort of getting fed up of just playing um, on computers all the time, and they're just. I'd, I'd just quite like to go to the pub and have a game. That's what yeah. I want to do. Right. With that note. The, again we've reached an idea so all we can possibly do is is fix that by getting to the acme of this show which is the the, the high point the, the moment that everyone really tunes in for which is the moment when chris russell turns his not inconsiderable brain towards the, the the problems of chess history and brings one of them to our attention so what have you got for us today chris uh, this week we're going to be delving into the life and times of vera menchik uh, whose story is perhaps even more spectacular than the fictional Beth Harmons, I think, um, that it's it's just wonderful the whole way through. Like, There's a, a brilliant chess.com article that I'd urge you to uh, 
dabble in if you want to know a little bit more uh, that I'm sure we'll link you to at some stage by Fide Master Turkarov, um, who I've uh, shamelessly borrowed some of his uh, excellent <laughs> research for this uh, this feature. Uh, so do check that out. Um, so the headlines from Menchik's career are that she was the first women's world champion in 1927 and held that title for a record 17 years. So Gaprindashvili later held 16, actually. I looked that up, so she's the second closest. Um, and Menchik's overall record in those seven world championships is insane. So 78 wins, four draws and one defeat across the seven world championships to show her kind of gap in class over everybody else at that point which sort of puts Magnus's current domination into a bit of perspective there that he's he's got nothing on the sort of gap uh, that Menchik had over the field at that time. Uh, she was born in Moscow in 1906 but then relocated to Hastings with her grandmother during the Russian Revolution and there she joined the prestigious Hastings Club in 1924 and became a pupil of Moroxy um, and it's at this point that Menchik said herself that it would appear the atmosphere of silence and heavy smoking is not appropriate for a lady. This is true, but chess is a quiet game and therefore the best hobby for a person that can't speak the language properly. And so that apparently is the reason that she really got into it, that it was her sort of way of uh, getting into sort of English culture a little bit more and kind of integrating a bit more because she didn't have the language at that point so she that's what apparently put her off from joining the club for the first couple of years that she moved to the UK yeah we've got a a kid in one of our classes who only speaks Mandarin yes I I mean I'm assuming this is still the case however this was to be fair the schools have been shut for three months so when we see her next term she may now be fluent in English but when she joined my club in September um, yeah, she only spoke Mandarin, and but her chess, it didn't it matter. It got very good very quick, yeah, didn't it? It doesn't matter. That's the point. It didn't matter that um, she couldn't really speak English or couldn't communicate, or that I had to say basic things to her using the help of Google Translate. Um, it meant that the videos I was showing the class, she would not necessarily understand, but because it's all visual... I think she kind of got roughly what was happening. As, as, as Chris says, she is now probably, she's up there in amongst our year fours. Every, every, we do weekly tournaments online and she tends to be in the top three. So we're looking mm. forward to seeing her next term to see what, what's going on there. But absolutely, chess as a vehicle for integrating into the school and making friends in the club and just being able to do something that was kind of transcended her um, her lack of her lack of English was really cool. It's one of the really nice things about travelling around playing tournaments abroad as well, that you've got the sort of universal language of the game that you can communicate with. Yeah, and making uh, Phil is doing the draw-off a sign where you're holding up your hands in a little cross. That's the, uh, But usually you can get away with the draw-off, although most of the time I'm getting the snap decline in whatever language I'm trying to play in the... the just looking at me shocked that I would even consider offering a draw. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's it's very, yeah, there's something about it, isn't it, that that kind of underpins those interactions and you, you get a chance to kind of use it to explore a little bit. You have it at the end of Queen's Gambit, don't you? With Beth going down that, the packed street at the end. Um, in the final That's scene. very akin to my experience <laughs> when travelling to chess tournaments, actually. 
uh, people coming up to me in the street and shaking my hands and wanting to play chess games. <laughs> and maybe mm. your Chinese student will be able to go to a chippy next um, next term and order food in English, perfect English, and everyone will be amazed. And then she can become a YouTube sensation right. and fund Phil's Central London Chess Club. I mean, it it doesn't really work the other way round, does it? I suppose it? not. Yeah. <laughs> oh well. Right, presumably, in in the middle of I don't know, Beijing, there is there is an English chip shop, which has the same sort of uh, tenor of. of and if there's not, maybe that should be our first step <laughs> in the process to this: that we open that shop in order to kind of play the long game. Uh, yeah, I mean, one man's one man's chess club in the middle of London is another man's chip shop in Beijing, right? So her chess.com bio uh, states that. At a time when few women were encouraged to play chess, Menchik was breaking barriers by playing top events in the 1930s. And this massively understates her achievements at that point, because she was scalping some of the very top players in the world around this time, and from the late 20s onwards. Um, and so there was... And this is one of the aspects that gets cited a lot and where I begin to feel quite uncomfortable with the uh, chess culture at the time. But I think it's worth referring to is the Vera Menchik Club, which was a disparaging claim by Becker uh, to commemorate the masters that were beaten by the Lady World Champion. And famously, Becker himself uh, was inducted into that club immediately in the same event after losing to <laughs> Menchik at that very tournament in Carlsbad in 1929, which I think is rather an apt punishment uh, for making this claim. But after that point, um, you've got a whole bunch of top players of the time who uh, get inducted into this club. So you've got uh, Connell, uh, or indeed Colonel, uh, Alexander, <laughs> um, Max Erver, Milner Barry, Ryshevsky, Samish. A lot of the top guys from that era uh, lost in t- tournament play uh, to Menchik. So I think it sort of leaves a bit of a sour taste that you wouldn't have had the same club for one of the other. There wouldn't be the uh, Colonel Alexander club, for example. Um, I don't think you might have had the John uh, McKenzie club yeah well this is what I was thinking that is the very natural next step isn't it <laughs> the club of juniors who've drawn with John McKenzie uh, is is the I'd assume what we will now uh, start from today yeah not a not inconsiderable group in the chess world <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately Menchik's career was cut short so in 1944 uh, she was killed in an air raid in um, only a couple of miles from where I am at the moment, actually, down in Clapham. Um, and she was only 38. And you kind of wonder, I think that's part of the intrigue in the whole story as well, like what she could have continued to achieve because her dominance was still vast at that point, like how long she would have held the title. Um, and she fairly rapidly kind of disappeared into... Um, sort of chess it, there wasn't there was only maybe one biography of her maybe about 10-15 years later and then nothing for a long time was written about her she kind of became one of those sort of lost figures until relatively recently again um, it was a first in fact perhaps the first English biography of her it came out in 2016 was this not something to do with the the, the kind of the recovery at the time like just people who died during the war or just Quite. after yeah and yeah or, and even in chess, you have uh, 
lots of other players at that point. So yeah, yeah, I suppose that's part of it that it just, which is yeah, a real shame because I think she was achieving things in the game that, um, well, as Turkorov says, which I'll, I'll leave him with the last word. Um, he says that Menchik paved the way for women in chess, and she did it at a time that was almost impossible. Mm. I think that's the sort of scale of her achievement in the game at that point. Yeah, because you have sort of, we we do naturally classify things as post-war and pre-war, and in that period during the war and just after, yeah, things do get forgotten because there were other things happening. Of course, mm. I, I'm reminded also of the Torino football team, John, um, who died in a plane crash in what was it, nineteen, was it late forties, early fifties? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and it stopped them going to the first World Cup, I think. Which yeah, was, well, the the one in nineteen fifty, I think. So it must have been. Yeah, yeah so I think it was nineteen forty nine, and yeah, that they have kind of only really recently have have sort of come back into common parlance as being one of the great teams. But perhaps it also says something about chess culture at the time, and something until now that we're not really ready for it in a sense, and that it wasn't something that was perhaps celebrated in the same way that it ought to have been yeah as an achievement oh absolutely and she's not really celebrated to an enormous degree here no no not at all yeah um we'd we've quite yeah so she represented represented england i think um it's either i think perhaps her mother was yeah her mother was english yeah that's right um and then that's where she sort of ends up coming back during the russian revolution to uh, Hastings mm. of all places yeah, absolutely. Sort of where the tournament <laughs> had been running since 1895 and so she's got the real chess culture there as well imagine fleeing the Russian revolution to go to Hastings <laughs> mm. yeah very quaint so who wants a silly question yes Shoot. now the silly question this week comes with a bit of context um, we had a message from a guy called Chris Enright who is one of those people who probably need some kind of therapy because they've listened to all of our back catalogue um, <laughs> so Chris is someone who I think played chess when he was younger is getting back into it and uh, came across our podcast who knows how uh, in, in searching for, for some information on chess <laughs> remarkable some meaning to his life yeah, yeah. Um, and dropped us a message which we, which we appreciated hearing but he, he ended his message with a, a silly question which was what would happen if the central squares on the board are removed from the board, so you're playing on a square donut-shaped board. Uh, Obviously, we're all taught that much of uh, opening theory revolves around controlling the centre early on. What happens if there isn't a centre? How does the the game go? So I'm going to put this question to you two. What would chess on a square donut-shaped board be like? I am on Wikipedia. So maybe this is my area of expertise. If you look up circular chess, uh, I played in a, the World Circular Chess Championships, which is a board that is shaped like a big ring donut mm. and has no middle bit. Uh, but the s- squares themselves aren't um, square anymore, if that makes any sense at all. They're kind of running around the edge. You've kind of got lanes around this donut, and so you can kind of go round the side. So um, it's not quite what chris is describing here with the center squares missing and the rest of the board stays the same shape um but they're kind of so you've got two lanes of pawns that are running round from one side to the other and then coming back through uh, and we played this we heard that it was happening in lincoln and we took a kind of day trip over there while we were at uni to go and play in this tournament um 
and that was the world world circular chess championship so i was the 2007 perhaps world circular chess champion uh, for my sins the first time i played it and i haven't played it since so i think i might be the un, undefeated reigning i assume that isn't how it works at all and someone else has got my title the next year yeah you uh, basically fissured didn't you yeah exactly quite you won it and then immediately uh, but- just went off to Iceland and Japan and yeah. No one has requested that I come back to the world of circular chess, so I assume that they don't care at all. Wasn't the bloke who um, who invented it really annoyed that you'd won it? He was, yeah. I uh, won the final game against him uh, in the uh, last match, and he was um, somewhat disheartened that his life's work <laughs> had. To... <laughs> yes. Did uh, you? Yeah, he didn't win it that day. Did you practice much before you played? I had never played it until I showed up at the day. Um, in the, my f- very first game was round one of the tournament um, so I kind of was making it up as I went along it sort of helps that it's very chess-like so you can kind of draw upon uh, your previous knowledge so in terms of what the gameplay was like it's very peculiar um, so bishops become really rubbish because they keep bouncing off the edges um, so they only have a kind of range of three or four squares at mm. a time and then they hit the edge and can't do anything but rooks are insane because they can do laps around the board uh, but you get very odd checkmating problems, like certain checkmating patterns are impossible because the king doesn't have a corner, so it just keeps running around the edge and you chase it around in circles. Um, none of this I was aware of before I started playing, so I was kind of making it up as so I went along. Uh, but yeah, there we go, circular chess. It is a thing, uh, but it's not as fun, I don't think, as if you just remove the centre four squares. That sounds really good. Uh, yeah, well, what what what's the take on what that would be like if we just had no square? I mean, we could try this. I think right. rooks would be pretty useless because they bishops would get knackered, wouldn't they? As well, yeah. because the long diagonal doesn't really work anymore. Uh, so all your long range pieces right, would be rooks, in trouble. Rooks would. Just oh yeah, mean maybe that, they could go around the edge still. Yeah, you'd, you'd still have like channels that you'd fu- function in, but you wouldn't obviously wouldn't be able to just sit in in the middle and go across the board uh, or up, up the board. But you could still like back rank people and attack people that way, right? How would knights work? If they're hopping through the gap in the centre, so they can't hop because it's too big. Yeah. Ah, yeah, true. They could, so it's four just... squares. So maybe every disappear. piece just becomes worse, apart from pawns. Well, the central pawns are rubbish, right? The outside pawns become suddenly really important. Yeah, presumably you still have D and E pawns. So they can only they go to D three and E three. Yeah. 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 The problem is, is that you would have to like the logic would change, right? Because it would you, your pawns would become more powerful if you took outwards rather than inwards. <laughs> Uh, if if you can get yeah. your if your your D and E pawns into the side spaces, then suddenly they can be promoted. But um, if they don't, then they just become absolutely pointless. Yeah, you'd get these battles for the the peripheral squares, wouldn't you? C four, C five, F four, F five. If you can get your knights to them, you could get your your D and E pawns. They could become like r- really quite powerful as as pawn chain anchors, right? If you can just stick them in front of that square and they're not really attackable from from any position. Well, that's um, what I'm saying. If you have pawns on d3 and e3, you use them as anchors to put yeah, your knights sure. on c4 and f4. Right, yeah. Okay. And then if they... And the knights are kind of immune because if they get taken, then the pawns Become find new life on the yeah. on the open files, on the uh, the ones where they can, they can actually move. Yeah. yeah. I think it'd be quite fun. I do too. I think we should try it. Yeah, maybe it can be the first one we do when we yeah, come back. Well, Phil, how's the quiz answer? 
Yes, so let's remind you of the question. Hopefully you've been jotting down some names at home. Apologies to non-British people, but frankly, some of these names you should know anyway. Right, there are 13 uh, women who have won the BBC Sports Personality of the Year Award. Let's start with Chris. My jotting down has not gone super well. I think I've got three names with some degree of confidence. Uh, I'll go Paula Radcliffe. Paula Radcliffe is one, so Chris goes one nil ahead. John, Jessica Ennis Hill. She never. She won the Lifetime Award, but she never oh. won the actual thing. I think she came third twice and second once. So yeah, hard luck. No, Jess That's Ennis ridiculous. Hill. Okay, Chris. Virginia Wade. Virginia Wade won it in the seventies. Two nil, Chris. Very good, John. I'm going to go Sally Gunnell. Sally Gunnell, I think, also came second twice. You're just getting the nearly wow. women of of the uh, of this, unfortunately. Right, okay, so still 2-0 to Chris. Um, we're nearly there with a win here, Chris, if you can get a third one. So I do have a third one, but I kind of want to see what John's next guesses are going to be. Maybe I should go for a rogue one and save it up. Uh would be my rogue guesses uh, let's go with my third then I'll go Kelly Holmes Kelly Holmes won it after her double Olympic success 3-0 Chris right John you need this to keep the uh, the match alive I'm gonna go it will be very alive at this point if you got one John Alex Scott thin. Alex Scott no there's never been a, a female footballer who's who's won the BBC Sports Personality of the World Year Award um, Chris wins 3-0 amazing wow what do you say Chris Get wrecked, John. All right. Well, there's there's quite a few here that you've missed, so there's ten more. Um, Can you give me some sports? Yeah, I'll give you some sports. I went through. I couldn't. Oh, what's the skeleton yeah. bobsledder? She must be on there. Mm. You mean um, uh, Haley uh, Williams? Yeah. No. no. Haley Williams? No. Okay, so there's two equestrian who are mother and daughter. Oh, Princess Anne. And Princess Anne's daughter, who's called. She's married Princess, to Mike Tyndall. Some, oh, yeah. Um, Parapalatama Ponkinson. <laughs> Zara is? Phillips. <laughs> okay, Zara Phillips. So, I'll Princess Anne and Zara Phillips. Um, a few uh, athletes. Princess Anne has won a BBC Personality of the Year award. Yes. She did it for her question and stuff in the early 70s. That is just dumb. <laughs> <laughs> right, next. <laughs> and there's a few, there's a couple of swimmers. Um, oh, yeah. But mostly they're runners. What, what was um, what was the swimmer who just came out of nowhere and then very quickly went back into obscurity? You mean Becky Adlington? Yeah, is it? Is it no, her? these are these are in the sixties. Okay. Oh. Okay, let's go through. So you've got Anita Lonsborough, Dorothy Hyman. She's Ma- the one who started uh, Body Shop. Possibly, <laughs> I don't know. Um, Mary Rand, who won three medals in the nineteen sixty four Olympics, Anne Jones. Uh, Mary Peters was, I think, a long jumper. And then the figure skater in the 80s, very famous. Oh, yeah. Um, Jane Torville. Jane Torville. I mean, Torville and Dean won it, but I'll allow Jane Torville. Um, and then the the other two are... One was a, um, I think, a discus thrower or javelin thrower. Oh. Oh, what's the name? Oh. It's on the tip of my tongue. No, I'm not going to get Fatima it. Fatima Whitbread. Fatima Whitbread. Yeah. And then a long distance runner in the early 90s whose daughter also now represents 
Britain at the 15, 1500 and 5000 metres. I think she was at one time the world 10,000 metre uh, record holder. Possibly. Is this the Scottish yeah. girl? I forget her name. Liz McColgan, whose mm. daughter Ailey now represents Britain. I think actually it might have been Sonia O'Sullivan, the, the Irish runner who broke that world record, but Liz McColgan was also very, very good. So yeah, but there's been 13. Um, you got three of them. Well done. <laughs> but this is the thing, like, you're just not going to see... Um, I mean, I wonder if Vera Menchik's career had had endured past the Second World War, whether eight or nine years later she might have been competing. But then women's chess wasn't really... I don't know. It's a, it's a thing where yeah. you just can't see what's happening with... It's very hard to suggest what would have... Yeah. yeah, and you can't really see what's happening with in Indian sport with Conor Humpy, that translating over here. Unfortunately. No. Not for a while, anyway. It's interesting how... Um, I, I guess so many of those figures are athletics... Well, that's because it's on terrestrial TV, yeah. It seems mad to me that there's been no England women's footballer. Yeah, and that there's no one been in the top three either. Um, I mean, Jordan Henderson came second last year. <laughs> I mean, that's... Gosh. Holly, Holly Doyle, who's a, a jockey, came third last year. Um, I've never heard of her. Dina Asher-Smith came third oh. previous year. Um, as we said, um, Jessica Ennis and Sally Gunnell were runner-up a couple of times each. Yeah. Uh, Becky Becky Allington was third in 2008. Joe Pavey was third in 2014. Um, yeah, there's there's been a few, but they just not tend to have won it. Beth Tweddle third in 2006. I mean, that was the year Zara Phillips won. Um, but yeah, uh, Tanny Gray Thompson has been in there a couple of times. So it's yeah. it's there's a visibility, of course. Um, but I think that's that's the other thing, isn't it? If you go down the list of winners pretty much all of them it's certainly in that era before I mean now we're getting satellite TV being a bit more widely available um, so the last two where Lewis Hamilton won it last year and that's mainly on Sky um, Ben Stokes cricket again that's mainly on on Sky but all the others you're going back through kind of you know Geraint Thomas cycling, ITV, Mo Farah Athletics, BBC, Andy Murray tennis, Andy Murray tennis, and it just keeps going. Where the the most visible sports are going to be the ones that capture the most public imagination, and chess is nowhere near that. So that's what needs to happen, really. Chess as a um, as a as a TV sport needs to be normalised before there's any chance of this, and that's what happens in India. Chess is on Indian sports TV, so that's what needs to happen, really. I think that brings us to the end of another edition of the Chess Pit Podcast. The usual housekeeping rules apply when it comes to the social media. If you like what we do and you want to find out more, search for Chess Pit Pod in your social media platform of choice and it will bring things up if if they uh, if there is anything there. Phil, are you doing any streaming at the moment? You've been you've mentioned that you've been doing some puzzles, but any plans to do any more? I think once the Easter holiday hits and I have a bit more time, that may become a thing and we should probably do a let's grill john soon or we, you were you were wondering about doing a let's grill phil for crosswords instead weren't you <laughs> nice yeah that would be fun all that we have to do then is to say thank you to our sponsor playfair capital playfair capital is one of london's leading venture capital funds and here we are at the end of another 
Just Bit podcast. So thank you, Phil. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Thanks very much. We'll see you on the other side. <laughs> <laughs>